And I am of the opinion that there's more than one way to a richer, more student-centered teaching practice. And IBL was a way for me, and alternative grading came in right behind it because it felt necessary. And I met plenty of people who started from the, boy, these grades are not doing what I want them to do and I need to figure it out. And then learned about other techniques because you get there one way or the other, that's fine. It, I'm happy to talk to people who want to do a better job in the classroom one way or the other. It's interesting because we talk about how your grading structure and your grading practices can be counteractive to what you say your beliefs and your own internal philosophies are. Welcome to the Grading Podcast, where we'll take a critical lens to the methods of assessing students' learning, from traditional grading to alternative methods of grading. We'll look at how grades impact our classrooms and our students' success. I'm Robert Bosley, a high school math teacher, instructional coach, intervention specialist, and instructional designer in the Los Angeles Unified School District and with Cal State LA. And I'm Sharona Krinsky, a math instructor at Cal State Los Angeles, faculty coach, and instructional designer. Whether you work in higher ed or K-12, whatever your discipline is, whether you are a teacher, a coach, or an administrator, this podcast is for you. Each week, you will get the practical, detailed information you need to be able to actually implement effective grading practices in your class and at your institution. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Robert Bosley, and with me as always, Sharona Krinsky. How are you doing today, Sharona? I am doing very well. I like that we start this off with you asking me how I'm doing every week, then I get to tell you. (laughs) But yeah, no, it's been a really good week. And I'm really excited because we have a number of workshops coming up. How about you? How are you doing? I'm doing good. We're in week four of my semester at high school. So it's starting to get out of that new semester phase and things are starting to level off. Um, has yours at Cal State with the crazy start that you had, is your stuff starting to level off yet? Yes, actually, we had our first uh, checkpoint quiz this week in statistics. So our students had their first experience of actually doing assessment in our alt grading scheme. And to be honest, I had some concerns about whether or not all of them were going to take it, but a lot of them took the checkpoint. So that feels like a very good start to the semester. For sure. And, And then... We are not here alone. So, Sharon, you want to introduce our guest today? Absolutely. We are here today with, and I hope I pronounced this right because I forgot to check because I know you as TJ, (laughs) but it's Dr. Theron Hitchman. Is that correct? That was excellent. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. So, Dr. Hitchman is a math professor at the University of Northern Iowa, and he's been there for about 15 years. And the way that we connected over the number of years ago is through inquiry-based learning. He's part of the team that has been really pushing inquiry-based learning in mathematics for quite a few years. And I first got to know you when you did a week-long training that is, quite frankly, the inspiration for a lot of the trainings that Bosley and I do. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you to you both. And that's gratifying to hear, but I don't want to take too much credit for that week-long training project. I was staff. (laughs) This is true. It was created by Stan Yoshinobu and Matt Jones, who we need to uh, get on the podcast. A little bit of history that I don't think you know, I've told, and Bosley knows this, I'm pretty sure, but both Stan and Matt were originally hired for their first 
tenure track jobs by my mother at Cal State. Really? Wow. That's fancy. I did not know that one. So I heard about them when they were first hired and how fabulous they were. And I think that they So just... was your was your mother the department head or a dean? Where where in administration? She was actually she was in the math department, but she was always in math education. So she yeah. was the uh, head of the hiring committee or on the hiring committee. I gotcha. Okay. And they had a big um they had a center for math science education. So those yes. two hires were intended for math education specifically. Yeah, that makes so sense. Okay. It's, Interesting. it's pretty cool in my opinion. <laughs> But anyway, so um, we asked you to come on the podcast today because inquiry-based learning, alt grading, they seem to go hand in hand. So I want to kick it off with our question that we like to ask guests, unless Bosley, did you want to ask this question? Because sometimes you ask it. Well, no, just usually when we have a, a new guest on for the first time, we always like to get their origin story. How did they get involved in this crazy world that we call alternative grading? Right. Okay. So I could give you, let's do the short version of the supervillain origin story. So for me, I was already involved in inquiry-based learning and working really hard on my classroom practice and thinking about what I believed and how I was going to make that work. And the very first inquiry-based classroom setup I introduced didn't have any traditional structures in it. There was no homework. There was not a regular test. There weren't quizzes. There was a do your work, come to class, and we'll talk kind of ethos to every day. That was the, that was that's my general lesson plan. And so, how do you grade that? And then how do you talk to the students about how you grade that? So I had to think really hard about those things. And while I was thinking about those things and kind of getting away with it by not telling too many people on campus what I was up to. I happened to be on the internet. It was this still at the age that, you know, the time where you could actually have a blog and somebody else would have a blog and you might read each other's like this was a thing then. It's not anymore, but it was then. And, and so I ran across people who were approaching changing their teaching through alt grading kinds of ideas. And we found we had a lot to talk about. And so that's kind of how it connected for me. So that's interesting. Every one of our guests, we've asked this question and we get some unique answers. I mean, a lot of us get there because of some horrible experience with traditional grading. A few others have gotten there by just looking at data and going, something's not working. I think this is the first time. And it's interesting to me that this is the first time because we keep talking about how alternative grading gives you the freedom to really match the purpose of your class and how you're teaching. Right. But you actually had to do alternative grading because of the way you were teaching was so incompatible with traditional grading. Yes. So I think that's unique. We haven't had that yet, but I'm surprised that we haven't had that yet because it seems to. Right. Me too. A little bit. It seems like it should have happened. (laughs) Me too. A little bit. I mean, and you know, if I were going to tell the longer version of how I started changing my teaching practice and becoming more professional, like I definitely have some horror stories about how things didn't work and forced me to radical changes. Like I I can, I could do those, but I kind of already worked through those. And so for me, it's a much gentler introduction to the alt grading part where I started talking to people and realized, oh, I kind of been doing that a little bit in one class already. Why not another one? <laughs> and, and reading math blogs, it, sure, that's part of your origin story, too. You found Dr. Kate Owens through in some of her blogs, right? 
Right. So I mentioned my mom already, Dr. Eunice Krinsky. I was listening to her. In fact, she and I co-taught workshops on cooperative learning before it was called active learning Uh on how to teach grad students to use it in the 90s. We were out there at conferences giving talks on that. And I felt a little bit like an imposter because I was using it and it wasn't working as well as I wanted. So what happened for me, I took a long break from teaching, came back and was handed Calc 2 and Calc 3. And I knew I wanted to do those with active learning. I had used the second edition Hughes Hallett book back in the 90s. I was like, I need to do this. And when I was looking for those active materials, that's when I ran across Kate Owens's blog and Josh Bowman's blog. And I said, mm-hmm. oh, maybe this will help because I was out there, I really committed to cooperative learning and I wasn't able to really make it work and like round peg, round hole, slot it together. Yeah, yeah. No, that matches with my experience too. It's definitely a, how can I make the grading not counteract the work I'm doing on a daily basis? How can it hide in the background when I need it to and play the role it's supposed to somehow while I'm not paying attention to it otherwise. I really want my daily classroom meetings to be full of formative assessment and leave the summative assessment till later. And so, and I wanted the students to have that feeling too. So I, I needed to find ways to refocus it. And for me, the easiest way in that one class anyway was just to throw it all out and pretend it wasn't happening and tell them that they had to trust me and my professionalism. And fortunately I could sell that, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> So how did it go then that semester? I mean, I'm hearing that you were doing it very under the radar and very not formulated. Well, so I was under the radar on the fact that I was going to have to do grades differently, but I was really upfront about changing my practice. I had had a really unsuccessful year as a visiting professor at a small, fancy private college. And then I came to UNI knowing that I needed to do something to professionalize what I was up to. I'd been trying to get through classes on a little bit of charisma. And uh, and it turns out in the end, that, that can get you through 50 minutes, but it doesn't really get anybody to learn anything. And so when I recognized that was a problem and that I needed to change, I was actively looking for something different. I talked to my colleagues here before I made the big change. I planned to go to an inquiry-based learning conference and to learn how to do it. There was a workshop embedded, and I made a plan with my department head where I was going to be allowed to teach my Euclidean geometry class two semesters in a row. He was going to just let me do my thing and try this. I talked to my dean and everybody on the professional assessment committee, and everybody knew that I was going to be trying something radical just to see how it would go and hang on. It might be a little bumpy, but this is what I'm doing and why. So that all fit. So, and, and it sounded like you got support from your college and your department, which I is did. great because that's not always the case. Well, so it was uneven. It was uneven. There were parts of the department who were really, really supportive. And there were other parts who just kind of like, whatever, you're a weirdo, do what you got to do. It's not, I guess it's not my business, but it mattered. UNI has a history of being a place where we train teachers. We used to be a normal school. And so it's a big, it was an easier sell here than some places, I think. And so I was not, I was really upfront about the fact I was changing my practice. I was just kind of quiet about the fact that when it came to grades, it was going to be like a, well, TJ's going to know what the grades are supposed to be at the end of the semester. 
And who was the audience? You said Euclidean geometry. A lot of times I hear that and I think future teachers. Most of them are. Most of them are. The very first semester, I only had six students, so that made it extra tough. But they're like 90% future teachers with an occasional other major dropped in. So somebody who's just studying a liberal arts math degree, occasionally somebody in physics who just enjoys it. I think I once had somebody in economics. I definitely have had a chemistry student or two, but mostly it's people who are specifically in a math education degree who are aiming at like five to 12 certification. So that was your first couple of semesters. That was your first semester. Well, yeah, Did my you first two. When you repeat, oh, your first two. Yeah. So what happened after that? So that class actually basically goes the same way. I haven't changed much about what I do there. To replace the sort of communication features, I learned to add conferences with my students throughout the semester. So I meet every student in week two or three for about 20 minutes just to get to know them and try and open the line of communication and then do that again sort of uh, mid-semester and then maybe like in a fall term right before Thanksgiving break just to make sure that we're talking and that we both have an idea about where they're at and what they need to be working on and how they could improve. Yeah, I still do that one basically the same way. Uh, But since then, I've tried lots of other things. Like I taught linear algebra for five or six years and I was trying a really hard, very intense version of standards-based grading, which cost me a lot of effort. I, yeah. And see, I stole, or sorry. No, go ahead. Was given (laughs) Drew and Stevens linear algebra and it is, just linear algebra. It's not linear algebra DFEQ. Yeah. And it's great. I love it. It's my favorite, one of my favorite classes to teach, but man, did they do some good work on that one. Yeah, no, that's hardcore. And in fact, I was deep in the middle of trying to rewrite linear algebra in a way I felt like worked and get a whole system set up and have it repeatable so that I could share it with other people. And I was getting somewhere sort of, but I felt I was still a ways off and then they dropped their stuff. So I just kind of gave up on that project. There's already a good thing that's a good entry point for other people i don't need to i don't need to share my half baked work on that yeah so then where did you go from there so now i just kind of try some version of it everywhere i don't know like um i teach differential equations and that tends to be more senior physics students here at uni so how does that go that's i have weekly homework check-ins which is a thing i think i stole from robert talbert oh i'm sorry borrowed from robert talbert and uh (laughs) A couple of summative exams at the end of the, the term. One sort of more of a, a gateway exam feel about basic techniques. Can you solve a linear first order equation by hand if it's not too hard? That kind of thing. Now, yeah, I just drop it in everywhere one way or the other. Maybe my favorite one for just raw strangeness is so in spring of 22, I think it was. I was assigned to teach a math for biological sciences class that I had no idea what was supposed to be in it. But right before the semester started, I unfortunately caught COVID and was down for 10 days. Like I was just in bed for 10 days and I missed the first day of class because I was still convalescing. So literally I showed up the second official day of classes for that meeting. I'm like, hi, everybody. Who are you? I have no plans. I have no idea what we should do. Let's plan class together right now. And we spent the first two class meetings talking about what they wanted to learn and how they wanted to be assessed. And we built it together and it was pretty close to an ungrading setup is what they wanted. Right. They, and we did that. It was great. 
I was about to say that that sounds like something that Jesse Stamos would absolutely love. Because when we interviewed him on here, he was talking about why is it that we, the educators, always have to be the ones to decide what needs to be done in class? Yeah. So actually giving that up to the students and going, okay, you guys are all the bio majors. You know what you need to know for math. So let's bring you guys in and help plan. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting and how did that class end up working? I mean, it did worked that great. End up being a, it worked yeah. great. Yeah. Uh, so the reason that it worked great from my point of view, though, is that that little exercise and like doing it sincerely, two amazing things happened. One, it was like the best student buy-in activity ever, right? I just spent two whole class periods telling them that their opinion was just as important as mine. Let's work this out. And we negotiated the thing. And after that, everybody knew what the deal was. There was no go read the syllabus, right? We all knew what was going on, and they all loved it. They all loved it. Can, and then can the second, you give a couple more specifics on that? Like, literally, you said, let's build it together, and uh-huh. then what happened? Did you put them in groups? Did you have them raise hands? Like, what? Oh, yeah, sure. How did that work? For a general audience listening, I guess I can't I can't say, like, I did these guided in instructor one of the skid thing from that i learned from michigan right like oh a guided instructional diagnosis i did that kind of thing we put them in small groups and i asked them to tell me i had a specific list of questions which i'm not going to be able to reproduce but it was tell me what's important to you what do you think do you need to learn this term one day was focused on just material and one day was focused on like class structures and i asked them what helped them learn and how they were going to we needled them about that in order to get better answers out of them. Yeah, I did. I put them in groups and I had them generate ideas. The class was small enough that we could just go around the room and ask each group their opinion. And we made giant lists and then we talked them through and I crossed stuff off and wrote new stuff and we edited. And the end of a class meeting, we're all like, oh yeah, this is what we need to do. What's fantastic is they basically built a really nice version of an ungrading setup. And, and then they also basically recreated the catalog description of the class for content. I was about to ask how how (laughs) similar did that class end up being compared to what would have been typically a math for bio? Uh, It's pretty, it was like the, I don't know because it was my first experience with it. So I don't know if I can answer that completely, but it was, we covered the, we covered the standard course description stuff in the first half of the semester. They wanted to know about like how do I write a linear model that that helps mo- you know understand this kind of data. What the heck is a least squares fit line to a scatter plot anyway? How do I understand that? What is an exponential function and how do I understand those? Because I know I need to know what they are. And they made a list of like, sort of pre-calculus and basic stats topics that are the kind of thing you throw in. And we just kind of played with those every day for eight weeks. And then afterwards, because we'd run out of material, they all worked really hard (laughs) and they were getting it. Oh, man. I saw a thing back in the day. It was on Twitter. I think the person's name is Jane Shevsov. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. She was part of a group that had written a math for bio, like calc level almost class that was about modeling with calculus ideas. My students were nervous about the idea of learning something that looked like calculus. But the approach of this is a thing which somehow describes a rate of change, and then let's see what we could do with models and then explore. So we did that for the second half of the class. We talked about sort of a dynamical systems approach to thinking about basic calculus. 
and I let them pick fun biological modeling projects and they all each team learned about one and did our final exam was everybody did a big report back to the class about like, topics I stole from mathematical biology fancy books like how does the temperature determine the sex of a baby alligator and how do fireflies sync up and those kinds of things and they, everybody had a great time and we all learned something so that's good enough for me so a that couple more like questions really so what level of student was this like what year in school Oh, scattered. Mostly not freshmen, though, because they had been avoiding taking a math class. So these were students that were into their major courses at that point in their... A little bit, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. And I, you, you said there weren't too many students? Approximately how many? I believe... Are we talking 20, was, 30? No, 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 12 to 15. I don't remember okay. the exact number, but something like 12 to 15. Yeah. That was a cool bunch of people to know, and a new group of students for me. I'd never had a student in my class before who said, yeah, I'd like to be a zoologist, and I want to go work at a zoo and help care for the animals and that kind of thing, or or people who wanted to be botanists. One student who was really gung-ho and spent her weekends out catching frogs. This is not the typical (laughs) math class crowd, and that that was fun, too. Because one of the things, TJ, we talk a lot here about is the opportunity to match your grading system to your personal values as an instructor, the level of the students, who your student population is, where the course sits in a curriculum. So your course sits as a service course to biology, as opposed to say linear algebra, which might be a service course, but in a sequence to engineering and physics, as opposed to intro to proofs, which is really core to mathematics. So how do you adjust? Right. I guess this isn't going to be news to anybody, I suppose, but it's 20 years worth of hard-won lessons for me uh, by making the same mistake over and over until I finally figure it out. That, like, and I think maybe this biology class was a counterexample, but the amount of structure that needs to be imposed, in my view, is usually inversely proportional to the student's preparation and their internal motivation. Both of those factors are super important. So you may have really advanced math or physics students who are taking a really hard math class, but if they don't just love that subject and think that they need to learn a ton, you still need a lot of structure to help them get get through it, or you will have people who let themselves fail by not working hard enough. And, and, you know, it's as great as it says, oh, just ungrade a class. Like, I think it really helped. I think that big buy-in experience at the beginning of the semester was important. If I just walked in and told them I was ungrading that class and it didn't matter if they did homework or whatever, that I would have lost them all instantly. It was really important because otherwise I, they didn't have a strong internal motivation to learn math for its own sake. And so it was important that they bought in and they told me what they wanted to learn. I think if I'd just done it by fiat, it probably would have crashed and burned in three weeks. Did I answer your question, Sharona? I'm not sure I did. Yes. I'm trying to wrap my head around because I got to teach history and math for the first time uh, a year and a half ago. Yeah, there's another Uh, experiment. Well, I've never taken a history and math class. Right. So I went in and they handed me, oh, here's the stuff from the previous person. Well, two people ago. So the person immediately previous to me had assigned like six textbooks about 
like Edward Snowden and, and all this stuff. And I was like, okay, I, I can't, like, I just can't. And the person before them had this list of learning outcomes. And the seventh one was students are going to go on a field trip. I'm like, that's not a learning outcome. That's an activity. <laughs> so there were only six actual learning outcomes. And they were things like students will understand the role that gender and race plays in who's a mathematician, which again, great, but right. so I had no idea what I was doing and Bosley had to suffer through this with me. I think I spent weeks agonizing over the content of the course. Yeah. Weeks. Yeah. Well, weeks includes months. No, no, no. I think every, <laughs> probably the entire audience for this podcast knows exactly what that means. There, If you're listening to this, you're probably the kind of person who suffers through these preparation moments, right? Thinks hard about them. I get it. And, and what I was struggling with is so much of my work has been in courses in sequence. So if I have a student who's taking Calculus 2, I understand I have to get them to Calculus 3. And this has been one of my push-pulls with the IBL, right? Yes. Because I feel like, how can I just let them have this freedom to inquire into Calculus when I know that they have to have advanced integration techniques to go into Calc 3? They need to have some sense of vector calculus. If they don't know what a vector is, they're going to just fall apart when they get to gradients. So that's been my struggle is how yeah, yeah. do I get to do inquiry right. in the context of a course in sequence? And I've found ways to do it, but it's still super structured Yeah, in my opinion. Yeah, you I know, understand. Cal- and then I had a conversation once with someone in my department who looked at me and I was like, oh, I'm really grappling with what to put in this class. And they looked at me and they said, well, everyone know what, knows what's in calculus. And I thought back to when we went to Math Fest and there was this entire track of what belongs in first year calculus. Yes. I was like, oh gosh. Yes. So I'm resonating with your bio class as far as my history of math class goes because it's not in sequence. It's mostly seniors and some juniors mm-hmm. and total freedom. Uh-huh. But then have you been teaching courses in sequence? Do you have to teach courses that are in sequence? And how does that work compared to this lovely Lucy Goosey yeah, reading right. I get I to inspire my students stuff. I know. So uh, the honest answer is that most of my teaching work, I don't have to worry about it. The hardest sequenced track thing that happens here is definitely for us, it's Calc 1, Calc 2, Linear Algebra, Calc 3. They're ordered like that. And then after that, almost everything else can be thought of as a terminal math class if, if you wanted. And I don't often teach in the calculus sequence. In fact, I think I've only been assigned to teach Calc 1 once and Calc 2 once my whole time here. I taught linear algebra a lot, and I really felt that pull. Oh my gosh, here, I have one semester to teach a general audience linear algebra class. There's mathematicians, math teaching majors, an economist, some physics students, a chemist. How do you meet all of those needs in one semester when you know there's a list of things you need to do it's very challenging and I don't have a good answer. You just have to pick and you have to stop and pick spots. This is a good topic where we can explore for a couple of days and give them a good experience there in that topic. You can't quite do the same overarching, well, what are these matrices about anyway, as an opening question and just let it go for six weeks, right? It has to be a lot tighter in order to fit the constraints that you're given. And that's just a fact. And I think that's one of the reasons I really do like the TBIL structure yeah. and the really good thinking questions that were developed mm-hmm. is although the students are not getting a lot of inquiry into exploring the mathematics, 
they are being challenged to create their learning through the inquiry questions, even though I know that there's this really direct path through the course, but the actual moment to moment activities are very much the students sitting in class and engaging with something because I'm refusing to give them the answer. So they (laughs) have to sit there and grapple with it. Yeah, right. Well, as long as the students are actively engaged in sense-making somehow, it's fine. It may not be the thing you originally had in mind when you wanted to build an IBL classroom without any idea of the rest of the world happening around you. But no, that's a good thing, and I think it should be encouraged, and it is definitely the appropriate choice in many places. That's good. So let's switch gears for a moment because we've talked a lot about you as an instructor in your classrooms. Okay. But what about these workshops? You're one of the facilitators, as we said, of these workshops. Could you give the the people listening a little bit of background on what the workshops are and how alt grading comes in? Okay. So this is a long running project spanning several NSF grants that has evolved over the decades. I, in fact, was a participant in one of these workshops way long time ago, 18 years, 17 years ago, something like that, where I went to one of these early IBL workshops and learned to get started that way. And then later, Stan Yoshinobu, and I don't remember the entire beginning crew, but Stan is definitely the center that makes this go. Got an NSF grant and expanded the project. And I went to a longer several day workshop that was run by mostly Mike Starbird and Carol Schumacher. And I learned more, right? And I honed my craft. And then I feel fortunate that that next iteration of the grant was focused on training more people to be leaders about IBL and teaching people about it. So when it expanded, I got invited to help out. And so I helped run a couple of workshops of that week-long format, like four or five day thing. And now we're onto a different project that's related. But the basic idea is that this crew, which is now quite large, has developed a pretty good format for running a four-day workshop for teaching someone, helping someone learn to build their own version of an IBL structure that will work for them and to implement it in a class for the first time. So we focus on what do you need to know in order to run an IBL class on a day-to-day basis and what... What's sort of the philosophical underpinnings? What beliefs and value systems do you have to have? And what does an IBL class look like? If you've never seen one before, maybe you need a couple of examples. And here's how you find decent materials. And here's how you build new materials by taking old stuff and tearing it up and rearranging it. And yeah, it has lots of different features. So yeah, it's a four-day IBL workshop. So you participants come in groups of like 20 or 30 and... We work hard on what does it mean and how do you do it and how can you get started? Okay, that's a partly answer. Help me out. So for anyone that's listening right now and is listening to what you're saying and wants to learn more about it or possibly sign up for some of these workshops, like where can some of our listeners go to learn more about these IBL workshops? So I'm, I think right now, a workshop that is just labeled like an IBL workshop, the best options would be to go to the Mathematical Association of America's webpage and look for the open projects that they have going. There's a couple of workshops there that are sort of IBL-ish. And then otherwise, I think the NSF funding for running these giant residential workshops where we bring people from all over the country to one spot to learn for a week, 
has ended. And so you kind of have to look for more of a local version of one. And I'd start by poking around at the MAA and seeing if you could find something through the IBL Sigma, maybe. Right, the, sorry. Well, the and we, the Academy of Inquiry-Based Learning, which is the web page that sort of hosts stuff yeah. about this workshop series, is still up and running. And we'll link that in the show notes. So people can actually go get some resources. There's some video resources and other things there. Right. Uh, I attended the IBL workshop, I believe, in 2016 in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. So that's the one that I did. Okay. Okay. Is that the one, Shrona, that you met some of the original organizers for the grading conference? No, that was Denver Math Fest. No, I went to the IBL workshop actually before I had, I had just started my own alternative grading journey. So it was sometime in 2016, maybe 2017. And we were at an extended stay America in uh, (laughs) Los Angeles and Torrance and that's where I got the model for our workshops that you've heard about with the different way the agenda is laid out. So this is where I learned to do the PD structure that we now use. So we've developed an alternative grading workshop that is directly modeled after my experience in the IBL workshop. Yeah. We actually did that before we even joined the MA Open Math Project. Yeah. So I kind of had a little leg up at the beginning of that project. Yeah, but yeah. no, so that's where I got that. But there are a lot of resources at the inquirybasedlearning.org. Yeah. And so that's where that is. I, I think that's a reasonable place to start for there. information. Stan tries to keep that as a useful place for people to land and find some info. So I realized that the other part of your original question on this, Sharona, was like, how does it connect to alternative grading? So there's the. The standard thing that definitely for me, it was, well, if I'm going to radically change my class structures, like grading probably has to fit, right? Everything should fit. My students tend to be future teachers. And so I've learned to be very open about my practice and my choices with them to model the behavior of a classroom teacher. And so I find myself often saying that you want your classroom activities and your assessments and your learning goals all should line up, right? They should all be pointing in the same direction. So you should assess as you practice, you should practice as you want to assess. So if class time is spent on, okay, go spend two days trying to solve a couple of problems and then come back and we'll talk about them, like, well, then your exam had better look different, right? It shouldn't be a sit down, here's one problem that should take you 10 minutes. Like that's not how we've been practicing. Now that I believe that deeply, everything has to change. All the assessment has to change to match whatever it is you're doing in class. And this becomes a a big issue when you have these conversations at, say, an IBL workshop or whatever. You're teaching somebody how to change their classroom practice. They will ask. It's pretty easy to predict. They will ask, well, okay, how do you assign grades then? And so it gives you another opportunity to share different sets of ideas and open people's minds up a little bit about what's possible. And that definitely happens. It definitely happens. And I am of the opinion that there's more than one way to a richer, more student-centered teaching practice. And IBL was a way for me, and alternative grading came in right behind it because it felt necessary. And I met plenty of people who started from the, boy, these grades are not doing what I want them to do, and I need to figure it out. And then learned about other techniques because you get there one way or the other that's fine i'm happy to talk to people who want to do a better job in the classroom one way or the other but it's interesting because we talk about how your grading structure and your grading practices can be counteractive to what you say your 
beliefs and your own internal philosophies are, but I don't think people realize how counterproductive it can be. I, I've told this story where <clears throat> I had a poster in my room for years before I switched my grading, and it's a something I truly believe at my core that math actually stands for mistakes allow thinking to happen. <laughs> I, I value mistakes. That's how we learn. That is at my core. But it wasn't until I had already made the change to alternative grading and looking back, realized how counterproductive my traditional grading practices were to that core belief that I want to value mistakes and I want people to make them and actually enjoy making them because we learn from them because my grading mm -hmm. punished them for it. And it just never hit me. And I know, Sharna, you've said a lot of the same things that you did all these other great practices and pedagogies and they worked to a degree, but it wasn't until you brought the grading to alignment that they all kind of really fell in place and started doing what you thought they should have been doing the whole time. Exactly. And Boz, I've heard you say that many, many times, the, the math acronym. And just this moment, I had another epiphany. <laughs> so I started scrapbooking right before my first son was born. So I started scrapbooking in 2002. And it was a huge craft for me for at least a decade. I've really gone away from it now. My kids are older. But one of the things I was known for saying in scrapbooking is there are no mistakes. There are only opportunities to do it better or different. And I never connected that with my teaching until literally just this moment. Yep. <laughs> but I had been saying that philosophy about scrapbooking right. since 2002. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is one of those things, right? Everybody's teaching practices based on which should be based on really deeply held beliefs, whether or not you can put them front and center all the time. Clearly, this is a thing. I'm sure I, I know the three of us share this idea, but like it's important. Math involves, I don't know, sometimes it doesn't go right. It's fine, right? You just got to learn to be okay with that and make it part of the deal. So I'm curious, boss, did you ever make making mistakes a positive part of your grading system? I know some people who've tried that in the past, but have you ever done that? Are you talking about when I was still doing traditional or now? No, I'm, well, either way, like, it, did it ever happen at, at any point in your journey on this? Did you ever make it so in order to pass the class, you needed to make at least one public mistake? I, I've never tried that. I, I've tried to do something else where at the, and I, I don't do this with my younger high school students, but my older high school students and college students, I would. And I, I did this before pandemic because since then a few classroom things have been weird, but I would get everybody in groups of five coming up to the board and asking them to do math questions that were 10 levels above where we were oh. you know, asking algebra two students to go up and define an abelian ring or, you know, forcing <laughs> them to make a mistake. And then like, okay, did anyone's head explode? Did anyone grow a third arm? Did right. any negative whatsoever happen from the fact that we made mistakes? Okay. And then, but I've never tried to actually make it a positive thing. Like, okay, you've got to come up and at some point in time, make or admit to a public mistake. I've, I've never tried that. That's, well, I, I would be I, curious to see how that would work. 
I've never made it part of my grading system. My friend Dana Ernst has definitely done that in the past. I think I, he's the one I learned that trick from. Yeah, I haven't done that either. I was just curious. I was just curious. What about you, Sharona? Do you ever do anything like that? So I don't do that. I do two other things. One is I always say that the person who's going to make the most mistakes in class is me because I'm the one writing on the board all the time. So uh -huh. I'm going to make the mistakes. And I request very much. And I usually get it eventually once they trust me. I get them to correct them. Because I tell them, if you don't correct me fast enough, we are going to really confuse some people. Yep. Like if I write a two and it's supposed to be a three, we're going to go down a really bad path. So if, so please ask, because yep. a lot of times it's a mistake. So yeah. I do that. Boz and I also do sometimes do error correction problems. So we mm -hmm. will oh, yeah. give student work, fake student work, and tell them to correct things. Yeah. Both of sense. those things we definitely, definitely do. The other thing I wanted to go back to though that you said was you said that our grading systems should align with our values. And one of the things that I've discovered is whether we want them to or not, they actually, even the bad ones often do align with some values that we're not comfortable that we hold. Yes. So one yes. of the hardest resistances we get to getting rid of traditional grading is this idea that we should distinguish between someone who gets an A and someone who gets a B and yes. someone who gets a C. Yes. Like this is important information. And when we say that everyone can succeed and we want everyone to succeed, what we're covering up or what we're not recognizing about ourselves is that it'd be great if everyone could get to an A if the A looked like the way an A looked like when I was getting an A. Yes. Uh, yeah, I understand. There's deep-seated cultural structural problems here, like the, the way that math is used as a proxy for general intelligence and even maybe a measure of human worth. Yeah, that's a problem, and I don't know how to do anything else with that except to confront people who have a strongly held different belief than I do. Like if you really think that there's somebody who just deserves an A in a math class because they're an A math student and there's somebody else who deserves a C because they're a C student, I don't know what to do with that. I guess what I'm saying is it's not even those students, but like I had some of those beliefs oh, and no, no, I hadn't I examined them. So what I'm finding is I'm not so worried about the ones who are just really deep set on that. We're going to have to age them out of the system and try to get the young ones to replace that. <laughs> but there's a big middle that truly believes that they believe in equity. They really oh, sure. honestly believe that they believe in it. But because they haven't examined this piece, they suddenly get very uncomfortable and helping faculty and high school teachers even examine that belief and really inquire into it. I always say, in my classes, I kind of poo-poo difficult conversations training because I'm like, I don't have conversations about current political topics in my class. I shouldn't be, at least not in calculus and linear algebra, yeah. unless I'm doing real world application statistics. It's a different issue. We bring it on all the time. But I'm like sitting here saying I, I haven't really paid attention a lot to some of these tools and techniques for facilitating difficult conversations because I didn't feel it was part of my classroom. And now right. I, here I am training faculty and I'm like, oh, uh, maybe <laughs> I need you some of those it. difficult conversations. <laughs> you do it. There's no way around the fact that you want to confront people a little bit about what is 
pretty normal that most people have complicated sets of value systems and politics and beliefs that are self-contradictory at many points and that's just the way it is because not everybody has lots of free time for sitting down and thinking about every little issue so you accumulate things that may be in conflict if you happen to be stuck looking at them both at the same time yeah so that happens because a lot of people who end up being faculty in math they got there partly because they were good at it at some level, whatever that's supposed to mean, and it's part of their self-worth, right? Oh, I belong here. I'm good enough at this, and this is what good looks like. And then you got to go teach a well, classroom and... full of students, and you want the students to recognize you value them as humans, whether or not they feel good at math. But how do you put all that together in your grading system at the same time? Right? you got to think it through. So, and and... Oh, go ahead, Baz. And that's the point that I've also tried to make in a lot of my trainings is why is the traditional things we do traditional? Mm-hmm. Because we're the ones that made it through it and the ones that are teachers now had to have had some level of success at that traditional model. Yeah. So it seemed normal to us, even though majority of people didn't have that success, the ones that keep instructing it are the ones that did and they did succeed in that. And without examining and realizing the reasons needing to change, you're not going to change. And that's how tradition became tradition. It wasn't for any mathematically sound way or or pedagogically sound way. It was what was done to us. (laughs) Right. And who knows, maybe at some point there was a good reason for some choice that got made, but after a while, the choice just sticks, and it's how everybody does it, whether or not it's good. And each faculty member is at a spot where they have the opportunity to re-examine their daily classroom practice and course structure from the ground up. It's literally your job. You have that freedom to think about those issues and, and put your classroom together the way you want. And so suddenly you got to think about it. And yeah, I think in the IBL workshops stage, there's a little spiel we always give. I think it's due to Stan called like, you are peculiar, pointing out to everybody that by getting to that IBL workshop room, you've had some advanced training in math. It already makes you a really tiny segment of the population. You somehow ended up with a job where you get to teach it to college students. Uh, Well, that's an even smaller portion. Yeah, you're kind of in a strange spot. How do you reconcile that with the people who are going to end up in your classroom who are not going to be like you. Um, it's it's tough. It's tough. And I know that when you run workshops, you probably have exactly the same issue. It's deeply seated. People feel certain ways about grades and what they mean, and you may disagree with them. And it will be hard for them to change unless they change further down the value system underneath it all. That's really hard. It just takes time. And I don't know any other way except to like ask hard questions and sit with the um, uncomfortable answers for a bit. And one of the things we often say is there's no one true way. Yeah. There's no one right way. Yeah. There's a bunch of wrong ways. We have lots and lots and lots of mistakes (laughs) we've all made. Yes. Yeah. But there is no one true way to do this. Right. And that also strikes me because for me, grading was the block the barrier to everything I was trying to do. Because I did start essentially in the IBL world, although I started decades before it was called IBL, or at least a decade before it started called IBL. But other people are coming to this first. They're coming to alt grading first. Mm -hmm. And we're debating how much to tell them, because if they do this, the students are going to drag 
active learning into the classroom. That's been our experience. You change this grading system and the students, if they buy into it, they're going to stop letting you lecture because they want to ask their questions that they know that they need to know that they need clarified. And we kind of are like, do we tell people this is going to happen? Do we just let it happen? So, so have you, that's curious to me. I'm glad to hear it, by the way. Go students, right? Advocate for yourself and pull what you need to out of your instructors. Is that anecdotal evidence that you've just talked to enough people, you see this structure happening over and over again, where somebody who changes their grading system but still tries to lecture eventually gets pulled by the students? Do you have data on that? Do you? I, I don't want to. I don't want to sound like I'm pushing. For yeah, that. I don't care. I, I'm just I would curious. Say how that, do you know? I would say that it is the almost uniform experience of the people we've talked to. Oh, I don't okay. know that there's been a study done yet. No, yeah, that's fine. But every single person practically that we've talked to has said, I ended up flipping my classroom around because my students needed more time to engage with the problems I was giving them and I needed to help them. Right. And whether they did it in the classroom or they did it in additional office hours or whatever it was, almost uniformly, I would say, Boz, have you, almost uniformly people talk about this. Yeah, but to be fair, I think it has been a really small group that has come into alternative grading wanting to really change their grading and was still doing lecture style classroom. Like a lecture owner was saying, there are some and every one of them that we've talked to has changed drastically their pedagogy, but majority of people, at least in my experience, that are wanting to change their grading practices already have some more non-traditional pedagogy practices in their class as well. There's not a ton of just Lecture and note. I think that might be a factor, the fact that we're still in the early adopter stage on some of this stuff, because I think as this is getting out there more, we're seeing more of it at conferences and things like that. It's getting a little bit beyond the early adopter stage and we're getting into a little bit more of the mainstream. Like we said, this number is small so far, but every single one, this is what's happened. Yep. And it's not necessarily IBL, but it's definitely active. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. It's, yeah. it's not necessarily inquiry-based, but students are no longer willing to, and even in my own classroom, like I had tried active learning and it wasn't working. And when I switched my grading system, all of a sudden the students were actually pulling me past where I was trying to go with the active. They right. were demanding more, even right. in my classroom. So Yeah. Well, so I find it interesting like I'm, I'm glad to have this belief validated that there's many paths to a, to a richer, more challenging classroom practice, and that I love hearing about students advocating for themselves and actually getting somewhere. <laughs> but like the, I wonder about the the group we're talking about. These are clearly people who, one way or another, have a, all of the pressures eventually get them into something more interesting and more thoughtful, more thoughtfully constructed at least. Uh, I, I like that. Um, do you find because I know you've been running workshops on alt grading for a while now. Do you find your your audience for your workshops is changing? We definitely found that for IBL workshops that at the very beginning we had early adopters, people who were true believers and that just I like I was one of these people. I was thirsty for something new and so give me something that has a chance and I'll work hard to make it go. Compared to late in the project, we would have people who I kind of heard about this and it seemed like maybe interesting and my friend was going so I went too. Right. And so it's a very different kind of experience and, and a different kind of audience to 
build a workshop for? Have you had big changes like that happen yet? So I would say that, so we've only run our workshop at this point three times. Okay. Okay. And all of them were past the early adopter stage. All the early adopters I know did it by themselves. They didn't go to a workshop. They've been creating the four pillars construct and things like that. So I feel like it's got a wide enough awareness, especially in the K-12 world where it's actually been going on a lot longer. Oh, yeah. That we definitely have quite a few people who are like, I kind of heard of this. Yes. Uh, So we definitely have those, but we have a real mix too. So we're definitely in a situation where in 25 people, we'll have four that have been doing it or have tried it. And we'll have another 10 that have been to the conference. And then we'll have another 10 who are like, yeah, I kind of heard about it, but I don't really know what I'm doing. And well, it, so a, it definitely is a mixed environment. Boz, would you agree with that? I, I would agree, but I'd also say in my K-12 world and settings, not only have I had that mix of group, but I've also had to work with people that are actively against it, you know, that are uh, dead set no, trying to get them to at least get to a point where they can agree, okay, maybe some of the practices with traditional grading can be made more equitable by making a few changes, but not getting anywhere near completely going into some form of alt grading. Yeah. So just as two related things, I think I shorted some local K-12 teachers by not mentioning them in my origin story, because it was definitely a thing that early on for me, one of the blogs I found that helped me think about this was by a person who was a high school math teacher in a town not too far from where I live. And they had a standards-based grading meetup that was aimed at high school teachers, but I was free that afternoon. So I went down and I met some people and I listened and I learned a ton from them. So let me just reiterate, hey, everybody in higher ed, you should pay attention to what your local teachers are doing. They actually teach a lot more than you do and they might know some things that you need to hear. I wanna bring that out. Let's all work together a little bit on this, yeah? Well, that's one of the things that we're trying to do is bridge the K-12 to higher ed divide. We've had a lot more higher ed interviews, although we've had some K-12. And I think the in-classroom practices are essentially the principles, the four pillars that we work on are are essentially the same between the two worlds. It's the administrative context and the stakeholder groups. Yes. That are so different. <laughs> oh, yes. Sure. Because, like, I don't have parents to worry about. I, yeah. I get it. I get it. No, in fact, that was well, – because that, oh, that was my second even administrators. Second right. I know. I know. And they're a different crowd, right? Like, somehow my dean is a, and my department head are very different kinds of administrators to have than, like, a principal. I get it. You know, so my local school district actually was pretty out front about doing standards-based grading. For a long time. So my children who are in the local public schools were experiencing this all the way through. My youngest is in ninth grade now. And yeah, they still do a lot of standards-based grading at my, at my local schools. But there was a bit of a reaction to it uh, a couple years ago. And so they went from having what I would call a really robust, just standards-based grading setup, right? Where everything was based on what did the students demonstrate learning of more than anything else enough of those stakeholders 
were insufficiently convinced that this was a good idea, that now a new standard for every class is something called an employability score about whether or not uh, you turned your work in on time. Everybody who's tried a good standards-based grading things knows that this is an issue about balancing your workloads and keeping deadlines good and making sure people are generally on schedule, right? But like the only stressors in my high schoolers' lives really are the employability scores. We just did an episode on due dates and when should a due date be a real due date and when should it should be a, a suggestion and yeah I, i've heard those arguments before about mm-hmm. oh spe- and i don't hear it in the higher ed as much which is odd to me but yeah in the especially middle school and high schools oh we've got to train we've got to train them to be able to function in college we've got to train them for real life you know they've uh... got to always be on time this coming from a person who's late to every PD, every faculty meeting, but you know, that's why we have to be so firm on these deadlines. You can't miss deadlines. Yes, I know. And incidentally, I dislike being used as the invisible cudgel against my own children and their peers. When I go to parent teacher conferences and one of the teacher tells me, well, I'm trying to prepare them for college. I have to bite my lip to say, Hey, listen, I teach at the local college and uh, we're not behaving that way. Yeah. See, I don't bite my lip. I know. Uh, <laughs> I know, Sharona. I know. You know me. I, I know. Good for you. I'm still Midwestern enough that I won't just start an argument unless there's a really good reason. Yeah. I just want to point out Boz is from, uh, I guess technically you're from the South. Is that what Oklahoma is considered? Oklahoma is this weird thing that depending on what type of like breakdown you're looking at sometimes we're considered midwest sometimes we're considered southwest sometimes we're considered south it depends on what type of marketing breakdown you're doing well and the reason i asked that is because well i was saying you think i don't bite my lip have you met my co-host i've spent Um, less time talking to boz than i have to you but yeah okay i (laughs) if you two get along then there must be something going on there I've never been banned from my child's school. That's all I'm saying oh, without wow. an administrator escorting me. Wow. Yeah, I, I got my in my oldest daughter's elementary school. I once got banned from being on campus without an administrative escort. We're talking about the math education in the classroom. To I understand. Um, wow. Hey, you know what? I understand that they rubbed you the wrong way and you had something to say. Go for it, man. I just wanted well, to. I really... didn't even think I was being that bad. But... You might not have been. I also know some school administrators who are rather thin skinned. So <laughs> I was just going to go back real quick, though, to this employability score because yeah. although I don't like the cudgel method of it, I often say to instructors if you think there is an important thing you're teaching, you need to write a learning outcome and decide how it goes in your grade. So if due dates are that important, write a due date learning outcome, because I guarantee almost no one is going to make it 90% of the grade. If they write a due date learning outcome, it's not going to be 90% of the grade. But in a traditional points and percentage based grading system, nothing matters more than the due date. Yeah, that's true. Nothing matters more. The other thing is in the episode we just recorded that's going to come out before this one. So those of you listening, if you have not yet listened to that one, please go do so. It's not that we don't agree with due dates. We actually have very firm due dates in parts of our course. 
and what we discuss in that episode is it's the intent of the work that matters. Yeah. So if the intent of the work is to prepare you for class, then it's not useful after class. Right. Now, we have flexibility in the grading system to say that's one component, but if you don't want to do that, here's something else you can do instead. Right. To still achieve the grade. So we also, because we work in a coordinated course, we cannot accept late assessments because right. we turn answer keys on for 800 students within yeah. 45 minutes of the assessment. And we build in flexibility for that. So you can't turn that one in late, but you can still recover because there's multiple opportunities. So we're trying to be sophisticated about balancing all of these requirements. Yeah. Well, and from the other end of it, I, I want to mention that I agree that there are some bits of this that are important. So I, I said that thing earlier about like structure having to be inversely proportional to students' preparation and motivation. I definitely had what I have to consider a personal teaching failure last semester with some of my more advanced students because my course structure assumed more motivation and independence than was actually there for a couple of my students. And they then basically did not keep up with the work in an appropriate way and then felt weird at the end of the semester that they hadn't really learned anything and saying, I actually needed more structure. Yeah, that can happen. It can happen. You have to be careful about that. So that was one where the audience change snuck up on me. And therefore, I was not the best instructor for that student that I could have been. Well, and there's an equity component because we know that some of our neurodiverse students need more structure yes. than other students. Yes. So, yes. And then we have students who work full-time 40, 60 hours a week, and they may need a more flexible structure. So I feel all of this is an opportunity, and we can tailor our systems to account for that without driving ourselves crazy. Right. Yeah. But on that, on that point, um, I think that's probably a pretty good closing point. We are uh, a little bit above our time already. I, I, I want to thank you for coming on. It's been great talking to you. I have not had as much opportunity to work with you as Sharona has, but I know how much and how positive she talks about you a lot. So it was great sitting down and spending a, a good chunk of time with you today. Do you have thank any last thoughts you want to share? Uh, no, not particularly. Thank you very much for having me on today. It was a pleasant way to spend some time talking to both of you. Thank you very much. And if you're still listening, thank you for listening all the way in. Don't forget the grading conference registrations are open and we will talk to you next week. Please share your thoughts and comments about this episode by commenting on this episode's page on our website, www.thecreatingpod.com. Or you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. If you would like to suggest a future topic for the show or would like to be considered as a potential guest for the show, please use the Contact Us form on our website. The Grading Podcast is created and produced by Robert Bosley and Sharona Krinsky. The full transcript of this episode is available on our website. The views expressed here are those of the host and our guest. These views are not necessarily endorsed by the Cal State System or by the Los Angeles Unified School District.